Well, I, I must commend all you hardy folks for... You know, it, it's, it's kind of sad that we want to pat ourselves on the back because we've actually moved this 10 minutes earlier and we're all here and on time. It's a little bit... I mean, it's, I mean, it's great that we all are, and I commend you all for that, but it's a little sad that I, I literally want to pat myself on the back for it. I think we should have a chart like a stock. Are you commending or condemning? Condemning I, I guess it's a little both. You took it, take that either way, couldn't you? Okay, well, let's open with a word, of, real quick word of prayer, and then we will get started. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we lift this hour to you. Um, we ask, Father, that uh, you would open our hearts and minds to um, that which you would have us to, to know and understand, Father, that this time would be used to your glory in our lives and in the lives of others around us. We do ask, Father, that any error that uh, we might discuss or put forward that you would point that out at some point and, and uh, save us from it. Um, and then this morning, Father, we, we lift up the James and Kelly and their families. Um, and we ask for your mercy for them. Please extend your grace and give them comfort. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just to let you know that the Lord has blessed this series for us. This was yesterday morning. Art saw this in the, in the Globe News. So we have a fleece. We'll be discussing that in a minute. We have a fleece here, I think. The verse of the day was, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. How about that? Ha! Okay. All right, we are going to be studying this book called Conscience, what it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Um, I have 21 slides. That means I've got to cover a slide every three minutes. Ha, what are the chances? Okay, so let's get going. We're going to start with the foreword. The foreword is written by um, D.A. Carson, and I thought it was good enough that I would just read it for us. Um, if I could remember how these buttons work. There we go. Okay. As Charles Taylor reminds us in his impressive book, The Secular Age, we live in the age of authenticity. I don't guess that's going to work very well. Yeah, but I had to click it three times to make it go. So we'll try it this way in which individuals feel they have the right to pursue and do whatever they want. That is what, is what makes them authentic. Inevitably, that stand makes one suspicious of all the voices of authority that, uh, that seem to tug at, in any direction different from what makes our lives authentic. The source or nature of that authority does not matter. Government, parents, tradition, religion, morality, nothing trumps my right to be authentic, which from a Christian pers perspective 
is nothing other than the siren call of the supreme idol self. Combine this with a strong emphasis on individualism, and the stage is set for the overthrow of a great deal of what was received from the past. Ironically, the voices that call for this destruction of the past and this construction of a new reality are highly selective in their treatment of authority. If they, seem to set, if they seem set to trim my authentic living, they are antiquarian, obscure, obscure, obscurationist, old-fashioned, doubtless bigoted. If they are busy establishing the new consensus, using all the authoritative powers of the media and the cultural imagination to prove certain stances and not others, then they are prophetic, wise, liberating, and in line with history. Small wonder, then, that this is an age that gives little thought to the nature and functions of conscience. Conscience is easily trampled if it gets in the way of authentic living. More dangerously, conscience is malleable and is easily reshaped to conform in substantial measure to the dictates of our age. We crush conscience in order to toss off what now appear to be the shackles of a bygone age. And then we immediately resurrect conscience in new configurations that establish new shackles, new expectations, new legalisms, new failures, new pools of guilt. For example... By a determined suppression, a new generation silences the voice of conscience in many sexual matters, and it teases it alive when it comes to the importance of finding out where your coffee beans were grown and what we should do to protect the most recently highlighted victim. Christians, of course, are not exempt from these pressures, but one of the things we must do to think clearly about such matters is regain biblical perspectives on the nature, nurture, and proper functions of conscience. This short book by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley are designed to meet this need at a popular level. It is a pleasure and a privilege to recommend it A proper focus on conscience, especially conscience that is shaped and strengthened by Scripture, will incite us towards holiness, teach us what to do with guilt, drive us towards the gospel, draw from us something of the joy of the Lord, help the church to be a counter-cultural community, and even prepare us for cross-cultural missionary work. Read this book yourself and give a copy to your friends. Okay? All right. So let's meet the authors. Um, Andy Nasali is the Associate Professor of New Testament Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis and one of the elders of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Whose church is that? John Piper's. Um, Earned two PhDs, one in in theology from Bob Jones University, and another in New Testament exegesis and theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Served as the research manager 
for New Testament scholar uh, D.A. Carson for about nine years, which was like a young lawyer's getting to clerk for the Supreme Court. And he continues to work with Carson to publish the theological journal Thamolius, I think is how you say that. His books include an introduction on how to apply the New Testament to books that survey and analyze Let Go and Let God Theology, Study of Conscience, a, a Study Bible, a debate book on the extent of the atonement, more technical tome on how Paul uses Isaiah and Job to, at the end of Romans, a debate book on the spectrum of evangelicalism, and New Testament survey. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, Society of Bible Literature, and Institute of Biblical Research. He teaches courses primarily at the graduate level on Greek exegesis, New Testament, biblical theology, systematic theology, and ethics. How the five theological disciplines, exegesis, biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, and practical theology interrelate and culminate in doxology. Okay, and then J.D. Crowley, he was raised in Japan and Hawaii while his wife Kim grew up in South Carolina. Both J.D. and Trent uh, trusted the Savior at, the, at an early age, and after meeting in college, they were married in 1980 and moved to Hawaii where J.D. pastored a Bible church there for 12 years. But their hearts were always drawn towards work among unreached, the unreached, and in 1994, Hampton Park Baptist Church commissioned J.D. and his wife as missionaries to pursue this long-held dream. Following a year of training with New Tribes Missions, they contacted Evangelical Mission to the Unreached to pursue the prospect of missionary service under, under them. Among Crowley's early goals, in, and so he went to Cambodia. Under Crowley's early goals in Cambodia was reducing the Tampuan language, a minority language, to writing in preparation for Bible translation. They accomplished this task, slowed by many linguistic and bureaucratic hurdles, during their first two terms in the field. J.D. has also witnessed God establishing over 50 churches in five different language groups in northeast Cambodia. And they have helped disciple the church leaders and their wives. In 1999, J.D. began the Kiriri Bible School, an indigenous training program for the tribal and Khmer church leaders. The school is now directed largely by the nationals. Crowleys have also worked to produce doctrinally sound Christian literature in the Cambodian and tribal languages geared to the cultural culture of Southeast Asia. J.D. is the author of The Kingdom of God, Studies in Matthew, in Khmer, and English, Commentary on Romans for Cambodia and Asia, in the Tampuan Khmer English Dictionary and co-author of Gospel Meditations for Missions. They have five adult children, and the sixth, Nathaniel, is at home. Okay? So these are our authors. Um, if we probably won't have time, they, they, they give personal examples of what brought them to this subject of conscience. But, um, okay, so anyway...
conscience. So have you ever really stopped to think about your conscience? How important it is and what it does. What's its impact? Does it have a single purpose or a multi-purpose? You really ever stop to think about how it works? I mean, it's just there, right? It's that voice there. Where does that voice come from? Is that voice your voice? Or is it somebody else's voice? You really stop and you think about it. That's a really kind of a hard thing to answer. Because, I mean, it, it comes from somewhere that has its own bit of training, right? There's certain aspects about your conscience that you didn't have a whole lot to do with, right? And yet there are certain aspects of your conscience that you have a whole lot to do with. Anyway, so is it a multi-purpose thing? Well, conscience, it turns out, uh, has, is, is, very, is fertile for subjects that touch on salvation, progressive sanctification, church unity, evangelism, missions, and apologetics. Some benefits you might get if you study the conscience are better understanding of the relationship between uh, better understanding of the relationship between uh, conscious and biblical maturity. Develop a new skill for getting along with people who have different standards than you. Learn to better recognize when disagreements are over disputable issues of conscience. Learn to recognize cultural conscience issues and to avoid importing cultural Christianity. Better understanding of cultural clashes with those of different opinions and habits. Learn how to better calibrate your conscience to God's standards. And learn how, it cleansed, how to cleanse and clear your conscience. So... Today, we're going to do chapter 1, which basically is, going to, is not going to define. So hopefully today, you guys are not expecting us to define conscience, because we're not going to. But what we are going to do is we're going to look at nine different attributes and characteristics of conscience as sort of an introduction to this study. Interestingly, what the, one of the examples J.D. Crowley gives about what kind of opened his eyes to the power and the malleability of conscience. He spent all those years in Cambodia. In Cambodia, one of the cultural... It's, it's culturally very, very rude to step over someone's legs. Um, it's, it's actually, I guess it's beyond rude. It's, it's a very much an affront. So he's back in the States with his family. I don't know, I pictured them on Thanksgiving or something. He doesn't go into this detail, but I picture him at Thanksgiving. They're sitting there watching a football game, you know, family all around him and everything. He's sitting on the couch eating, and he gets up to, to take his plate back to the kitchen, and the two guys on either side of him, they got their legs up on the table, and neither one bothered to put their legs down. He's a big guy. He can step over. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> we do this all the time. And it was a an emotionally traumatic experience for him to force himself to step over their legs. 
because his conscience was so offended in doing so. And it brought home, and he realized, though, that in this culture, that is nothing, means nothing. Maybe they're a little rude, you know, that they don't move their legs for him, but, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, etically, there is no etical, et, et, etiquette affronted or anything like that. But in Cambodia, it would be paramount to a sin. Why the difference? Okay? So conscience. The most common view of conscience is the little angel on the right shoulder and the little devil on the left shoulder, right? Okay? And um, the authors point out that this picture resonates with people because we commonly experience internal conflicts that seem like voices in our heads arguing about what to do in a particular situation. you find that true? We'll talk about that more in, a, in just a few minutes. Okay, so conscience. Let's talk about some of the attributes. So conscience is a human capacity. So first of all, does your dog have a conscience? If you have a cat, I wouldn't ask. I know the answer. Okay? The answer is no. I mean, dogs often look like they have a conscience and and they can kind of act like they have a conscience, but they really don't have a conscience. What dogs are all about is getting along with you. And and they'll they'll act like they did something wrong if it'll make you feel better about them. And they quickly figure out that that works, and so then they'll act like they've, you know, they feel guilty, but they actually don't feel guilty. Proof of it is cats. You know, would a cat ever feel guilty? It's clearly no. You know, I think there's no argument there, right? Okay, conscience is a human capacity. So, what is a capacity? Well, it's the ability to do, experience, or understand something. Conscience then is something that's very. Cl- I mean. It, it, Conscience and capacity are kind of interrelated in some ways. I keep, my, keep up with my slides, don't I? It's, okay, and then, so the authors do say, <clears throat> to be human is to have the capacity for conscience, whether or not one is able to exercise that capacity. Okay, so we do know. That there are that you know not every human being has all their has, has you know that fa- certain faculties can be lost can be most of us we have all our faculties but faculties can be lost conscience is one of those things we can even make it go away if we work hard enough right okay. Conscience reflects the moral aspects of God's image. What is conscience? The authors say this. What is conscience if not shining the spotlight of your moral judgment back on yourself, your thoughts, and your actions? I thought that was a a particularly good statement about the, 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 the proper function of conscience in our lives. 
Conscience is inherent to personhood. That means that it was a capacity that we had pre-fall. Right? It also means it's a capacity we will have one day when we are glorified. A conscience is part of what it is to be human. Nope. No, we're not going to do that because we ain't got time. Otherwise, I'll get in trouble with him. I, you know, so I'm. I'm uh, <laughs> you're going to. I'm going to make you pay for this, Seth, one way or the other. Okay, conscience feels independent. Do you find that true? Is that voice in your head your voice? And sometimes, no, right? Because sometimes it's telling you things you just don't want to hear, right? Remember that statement from Jimmy Cricket? The conscience is that still small voice that humans don't listen to, okay? All right. So there are some analogies. Uh, The first one would be arbitration. You got the little angel on your right shoulder, you got the little devil on your left shoulder, and you're the arbitrator between the two, right? Okay? The the example that uh, the authors use is the courtroom in which the prosecutor and the defendant and the judge are all the same person. They say, what a joke that would be. The judge gets up on the stand and reads the sentence. He gets back down, you know, says not guilty, and then he, well, he, you know, he gets back down and he defends himself and he gets back up on the stands and pronounces himself not guilty, okay? I tend to think, well, I, I don't know as I relate to that one as well. I relate to the analogy in the courtroom in which I'm the defendant and I'm the judge, okay? But my conscience is the stupid prosecutor over there trying to make things difficult for me, all right? So the question, why do we even care? I mean, what power does conscience have, really? It can't whip us. It can't take money away. It can't, it can't really do anything to us. So why do we care? And yet we do care. We judge ourselves many times every day using our conscience and we all um, unless we have seared our conscience we take it seriously don't we even if we don't want to and when we don't do what our conscience tells us there is anxiety inside of us isn't there so why well actually nobody really knows Believe it or not, I guess, out there in the literature, according to the authors, no one really knows. But they do posit this. Perhaps it is because your conscience is not just the imperfect knowledge of God's law, but it is also an inscribed knowledge of His justice and therefore His judgment. And then they go back to Romans chapters 1 and chapters 2 
What do we find in Romans chapter 1? In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about every man has evidence of God before them because what may be known about God is evident to them. And then in chapter 2, we find this. For the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So basically what they're saying is is that all of us very strongly intuit very strongly our accountability to an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And it is our conscience that is reminding us of that. Could I want? Yes, ma'am. I can't. Okay, sorry. All right. Um, So, basically, I think what Paul is saying is that we intuitively know that God exists and that He is just. That there is a transcendent moral law that we intuitively know. And we know that we regularly disobey that law. And we intuitively can sense that one day there will be a reckoning. Right? Okay. Conscience is a priceless gift from God. Conscience is given to us for our good. Oh. Um, for the, in the example, and an example of this, take the example of touch. Um, we have the sense of touch. What does touch, what, why is touch good for us? Well, touch has the ability to alert us. It's a warning system that we are about to dam, about of, at, in moments when we are about to do some sort of damage to our bodies, right? Like if we, we're about to burn ourselves or if we're about to cut ourselves or those sorts of things, our, our, our sense of touch is what informs us, warns us, so that we can make adjustments. Guilt, is it not the same thing? It is that sense which warns us when we are about to do serious damage to our souls. Let me rephrase that. It can be that that thing that warns us when we're about to do damage to our souls. It is also for our joy. The authors point out that your chief end is to glorify God 
by enjoying him forever. Now, why in the world would they come up with that? Well, it's a paraphrase of both the Westminster Catechism and John Piper, right? Okay. Truth of the matter is, happiness, it's hard to be happy if you don't have a clean and clear conscience. But you can be in some pretty tough situations, and if you have a clean and clear conscience, it's easy to be happy. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Proverbs 14, 22b. Oh, is that what, oh, sorry, Romans. Sorry. Thank you. Okay. Conscience wants to be an on-off switch, not a dimmer. Your conscience never says it's complicated, does it? <laughs> this is complicated. Let's see. I'm not, I'm not sure. We, the arbitrator, may say that, but your conscience says it's not complicated. It's either right or it's wrong. It's either black or it's white. It's either accuses you or it excuses you. It pronounces you guilty or it pronounces you innocent. Because conscience wants to make, oh, sorry. Because conscience wants to make such stark pronouncements, it is of utmost importance that you align your personal conscience with conscience standards with what God considers right and wrong, not just with human opinion. Otherwise, your conscience will pronounce guilty verdicts or not guilty verdicts on matters of mere opinion. Okay, well, it'll pronounce you guilty on matters of mere opinion but it can also pronounce you not guilty on matters of God's law. Is that not right? And we see, I think we are seeing that in spades in our culture today. Okay. Conscience belongs to a person. It's personal. MYOC, what does MYOC stand for? Mind your own conscience. All right. The authors point out, and I thought this was interesting. The authors say, make this statement. Accepting this one principle would solve a large percentage of the relationship problems inside and outside the church. Why would they say that? They've been married. Say what? They've been married. No, well, they are married. Mark's <laughs> <laughs> are ma- going to get himself in trouble. Hmm? Too late. Too late. <laughs> Okay, so why wouldn't they say that? Is that, mind your own conscience. If some, I mean, okay, mind my own conscience, but would, would this be immediately where you would go to for if, if somebody told you that? That, if, that the notion of minding my own conscience 
would actually help with in terms of disputes and, and relationships with people? Yes, Mike. Actually, in this world, if my conscience was perfectly aligned with God's will, I'd have conflicts in a lot of places, I think. Not, well, not with myself, but with lots of other people because their consciences are not aligned with God's will very well, right? Letha. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Well, that, yes, that is a true axiom. Uh, however, yes, okay. So in, in this instance, though, if I'm about minding my own conscience, what am I doing? Well, I'm concerned that what I think is right and wrong is aligned with God. what God thinks is right and wrong, actually right and wrong, Okay. And I would be, if I'm minding my own conscience, then I'm busy about the work of calibrating, continually attempting to calibrate my conscience to the will of God. All right? Conflict can arise when I get concerned about your conscience not being aligned with the will, my notion of what is the will of God. Okay? And we can get bent out of shape with one another all the time because things that you think are very important, for you, very important, your conscience is telling you are very important, my conscience is not telling me is very important. So I'm not minding that very much. And if you're worried that about me not minding that, there's going to be conflict. Okay? This, and, and the conflict will center around something that my conscience says is a problem and your conscience says isn't. Is that right? See that? Say what? <laughs> so their point, so I believe their point is when they say MYOC, mind your own conscience, worry about your own, don't worry about others. You got enough trouble with your own. Stay focused on that. I believe is what they're trying to say there. Okay, so let's look at this a little more deeply. Conscience is unique to each individual. So this is Anne's conscience. Anne has a number of rules in her conscience. We, mark, we denote them with the letters A, C, D, E, and F. So let's talk about what those rules are. So A is don't discriminate. B is don't buy non-trade coffee. D is don't steal. Um, C, or C is don't steal. D is don't lie. E is love the Lord. F is don't covet. Well, here's Bill's conscience. So Bill and Ann, their consciences overlap quite a bit, right? 
They're, they, they share a lot in common. But Anne's got some things that she thinks are pretty important in her, that, she's, that she feels pretty strongly about that Bill really doesn't care about, namely A and B. And Bill's got some things that he feels really strongly about, and Anne could care less, right? G-H-I-J. So let's put, put some, some flesh on that. So G, don't have sex before marriage. H, don't play video games. I, don't go to movies, movie theaters. And J, don't use unfiltered internet. So what does Ann think about Bill? He's a legalist. <laughs> what does Bill think about Ann? He probably doesn't know the word, but if he did, he'd, he'd call her an antinomian and he'd mean it very negatively, wouldn't he? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we do know these words. We just studied them so we can use them, right? <laughs> All right. Okay, so can, can everybody relate to this and kind of see this? Yeah? All right. So, for example, Anne, who has moved in with her fiancé, really doesn't see that big of an issue of having sex before marriage if you're, you know, if you're about to marry him. Okay? She's, she's fuzzy on that. That doesn't bother her. Bill can hardly consider her a Christian because she thinks that way. And Anne looks at Bill and says, My goodness, what a bigoted legalist. All right, so obviously our consciences never perfectly match God's will. So we'll drop God's will in here. And as you can see, God's will encompasses many of, of, the, of, of both Anne's and Bill's conscience, many of the things in, in their conscience. However, he's got some things that neither one of them are thinking about, right? The goal here is to calibrate our conscience to God's. So let's take issue B. Don't buy non-free trade coffee. All right? Now, Ann thinks that's very, very, very important. She thinks it's, you know, we should put our money where our mouth is. Coffee costs a little bit more money, but at least we're not per- perpetuating the... Uh, abuse and um, press, you know, oppression of workers in the coffee fields. She thinks that's important, really important. But one day, Anne does realize that that may not be that important to God. And so she recalibrates her conscience in terms of his, in terms of his law. Now, it, it, it doesn't mean that she's going to change her mind about that this is an important issue. She's just going to see that actually this probably doesn't fall under 
the law of God. And so she recalibrates her conscience. And what does that do in terms of her relationship with Bill? I'm pretty sure that she's still going to have some issues with Bill, but at least she's not going to be, you know, she's not going to take offense at Bill because Bill is not concerned about her concern. That doesn't mean she's going to change and stop drinking, stop worrying about free trade coffee. She's going to continue to worry about free trade coffee. She's going to buy free trade coffee. But it is going to change her relationship with Bill on that matter. Now, hopefully, we can see that we, you know, I've, I've put specific examples on here. Take those examples off. Put your own on there. You spend a little time. You can fill in every one of those with your own stuff, right? Well, you can put what you think mine are on Bill, put what you think yours are on Ann, and, and we can get started. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so how do we calibrate our conscience? Well, there are three major means that God has provided. The first and foremost is His Spirit in conjunction with his word, in conjunction with his church. What we're doing today, I think it's important. It's important in all our lives, being here today with one another, before the Lord, under the ministry of his spirit. Your conscience can be damaged. And it can be damaged in one of two ways. Um, it can make it, we can make it insensitive by developing a habit of ignoring its voice. The Bible speaks of a seared conscience, right? Or we can make it oversensitive by packing it with too many rules that are actually matters of opinion. Interestingly enough, and I'd never thought about this, you can have both of them in the same conscience. Can you think of an example? How about the Pharisees? The Pharisees cared nothing about the heart. Okay, their consciences in terms of what God really wanted was completely seared. They had no idea that what they were doing was completely outside the will of God. But Jesus said it was, right? And yet he turned around and he condemned them because they set rules upon people over and over again that had nothing to do with the law. So on the one hand, their conscience is seared. They, they, they were not concerned about loving the Lord their God. They were concerned about keeping His law. And on the other hand, 
They were oversensitive because people were doing things that offended his, what they thought was his law. What about today? Can we be the same way? Can we be callous and yet easily offended at the same time? There are two cases. So that concludes our, the, um, the, the attributes and characteristics of uh, the conscience. They also point out there are two uh, important, there are two great principles about conscience. The first one is God is the only Lord of conscience. Okay, so let's talk about that a minute. What does it mean that God is the what does that mean that God is the only lord of conscience? He's the one that we need to be calibrating our conscience with. That is true. That is that's that's that is definitely a piece. Is does that mean that government should have no influence on our conscience? Does that mean our parents should have no no influence on our conscience? Okay. Does that mean mean that we have no influence on our conscience? That's a little trickier. (laughs) Right? Okay. Well, so then how how do we balance that? I mean, if we're going to say that government has the right to to influence our conscience, then how do we balance that with God is the only Lord of our conscience? Um, yes, ma'am. Right, and we also know well, but we also know as we move, as we develop, and as as we grow as Christians, that there are things that we, we we discover that in our within ourselves, that though that law lies there, there's many things that we just were not paying attention to, and suddenly become, and and so we commit sin, we do it all the time, right, and. Um, you know, it is it is the part of sanctification that we um, that we we become more and more aware. And what is it that's telling us? What is it that is showing us more and more that we are not living according to the will of God? What is it? Aligned and. T- 
That's right. The Word of God shines its light on our conscience, and our conscience shines that same light on our lives. Is that right? Well, I, th- you know, I'm not sure. I think the, the the biggest struggle here is is that there's really two there's two factions warring for lordship over the conscience. Actually, there's God and there's me warring over my conscience. And the question is, am, am, am I going? And and this 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 comes down to. It's 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 interesting the interplay and I, and I've never thought about this this way the interplay that as I bend my knee to God, okay, God becomes more and more the Lord of my conscience, and that's where I need to be. Okay, so Art says, and you only be keep constantly thinking about the final result because he's going to be the judge of your conscience. Seth? Say what? Satan? Satan? Yeah. Okay. That's true. Uh, that uh, Seth, Seth points out that there is somebody else besides just me, and, and that that is which is Satan. Satan wants would Satan would love, wouldn't he? Love to be the Lord of my conscience. I think he would. He really would. Um, as well. Okay, that's a good point, Seth. How important is the conscience? Principle number two. You should always obey your conscience. That's their second principle. So, playing exactly off of Blake's comments here, it's very important to, to, to hold... We, 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 the, with these principles, the Lord being the Lord... The, uh, we, and it's very important because th- that the Lord be the Lord, that God be the Lord of our conscience because um, for that very reason, for, that we should always obey our conscience. Why do they say we should always obey our conscience? 
Why would they say that? I understand. I, it is. All right. Then we're, in, we're then we're then if if number one is in place, then number two is the safe place to be. Is that right? Okay. It's an interesting thought, though. It's, I mean, to say that as the two to to label these as the two great principles, and to make you should always obey your conscience. Principle number two. Now let's go back to Anne. All right, so Anne's got this thing about non-fair trade coffee. All right, Anne has decided that well, okay, so not drinking, not you know, that it's not a sin if somebody if Bill goes out and buys Folgers. Okay, it's not going to be a sin. I'm, we're not going to label that a sin anymore. But should Anne stop? Drinking should Anne start drinking Folgers? Now Anne has recalibrated her conscience to say that this isn't a violation of God's necessarily a violation of God's law, but has her feelings really changed here? So what should Anne do? Follow principle number two. <laughs> Interesting, huh? Right. Yeah, so exactly. One of the, yeah, the, the, and, and, and where pop conscience can get a negative rap is if you fill the conscience with, what did they put it, uh, by packing it with too many rules that are not actually matter, that are just matters of opinion. But if you pack your conscience and make those rules of conscience, then suddenly you're, you know, the reconciling that with the the reality around you becomes difficult. Reconciling that within your own self becomes very difficult and we know what happens when we become get in conflict with our conscience a lot of it's it's a lot of anxiety it's a lot of stress you know and a lot of people recognize realize that if i want to get rid of the stress all i need to do is stop listening to my conscience well it it takes more than that to sear it but that's the start. That's the first step towards searing it. You think about it; it's still really hard not to listen to that guy. You know, he's there. It's hard to make him go away. It takes some work, but it can be done. Good question. Okay, though so the question is the verse that talks about how our heart is deceitfully wicked. All right? Is that talking about our conscience? <laughs> so uh, I would say that no, it's not actually talking about our conscience, it's talking about our heart. And our heart 
is not necessarily our conscience. Okay, so our heart is 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 kind of it's it's our heart and our is part of what makes up makes us up as a person. All right, it, and it because it is fallen, it it is rebellious against God, and it seeks it seeks any and every way to get away from Him. Okay? The conscience, obviously, is that thing that is written there that is in conflict with that. I think so. I think, I'm sorry, I've only, I've only read the first three chapters, but I'm pretty sure, yes, we will probably look into that more deeply. Holly? Can the conscience not be affected by the fall? How about how about we leave that to I will leave that to a future teacher. Huh? Say what? Okay. Yes. Well, I believe the conscience was amongst the... Okay, we'll let guys comment in on that. So, Blake. Yeah, so anyway, uh, yes, that's right. And and it's a it's it gets if you start thinking about this, this gets pretty darn complicated. So, Ian, pre-calibrated conscience 
Was it a sin if she drank non-free trade coffee to Ann? Yes, because she was violating her conscience. It's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. You want to read it? All right, okay, guys, we got to stop. i got to get done here, okay? Good discussion, all right? Hopefully you see this is, this, 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 is, this is worthy of some serious thought. Okay, so is Jiminy Cricket correct? Let your conscience be your guide. Sort of. Here's how the authors would put it. Unless God shows you by His Spirit and or His Word... That your conscience is registering a mistaken moral judgment, and if you believe he wants you to adjust your conscience to better match his will, your conscience must bend to God. All right? But principle two says you bend, you obey your conscience. Okay, so next week. Um, uh, oh, so, okay, sorry. So, in review, uh, conscience is a human capacity. It reflects the moral aspect of God's image. It feels independent. It is a priceless gift from God. It wants to be an on-off switch, not a dimmer. It belongs to a person. It is unique in each individual. It, is, it never perfectly matches God's will, and it can be damaged. So here are some, principle, here are some characteristics and attributes of, of our conscience. Next week... There are 30, conscience is actually used in the New Testament 30 times. So I'm assuming we'll be doing this. We will look at all, each of the 30 passages. All right? And then at the end, we will look at the author's definition of what is, a con- or what is conscience. And that's it. Three minutes over. Boy, that, I tell you what. And, and, and I, we even had time for discussion. It was, I think you about got me whipped into shape, Seth. <laughs>